Welcome back to the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I am your host, as always, Robbie Burke. And before we get into today's show, I just want to give a shout out to all of the show's sponsors. Firstly, upmentorship.com, which is one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. The Ultimate Performance Online Mentorship is 20 hours of top-class strength and conditioning information available for instant access right at your fingertips. To find out more, head over to upmentorship.com, which is linked up in the show notes, check it out, and help support the show. Next, I want to give a shout out to Altus360 and Altus Education, which are two outstanding online resources for any practitioner in the sports preparation profession. Be sure to head over to the show notes and check out these unique platforms. Next, I want to give a shout out to Joseph Johnson at Ultimate Alley Concepts. Ultimate Alley Concepts is a multifaceted company providing the most sophisticated scientific material in sports science. Ultimate Alley Concepts is the world's leading resource for translated sports preparation material. Next, I want to give a shout out to Papi's National Sports Performance Association, which is an online certification platform for professionals within the sports preparation profession. Currently, the NSPA has four certifications available. Speed and Agility, delivered by Lee Taft. Olympic Weightlifting, delivered by Will Fleming. Nutrition, delivered by Dr. Chris Moore. And Program Design, delivered by Coach Robert Dos Remedios. For more information on the NSPA, be sure to check out all of the links in the show notes. Finally, I want to thank another brainchild of Pat Beef's, Athletes Acceleration, which is another online medium that delivers excellent educational resources for strength and conditioning professionals. And just like with all of our other sponsors, head over to the show notes to get the links to all of the available products that Athletes Acceleration has to offer. A full disclosure, except for Altus360 and Altus Education, I am an affiliate to all of the show sponsors. Lastly, before we get into today's interview, I just wanted to let all the listeners know that the podcast is now on Patreon. If you feel that you are in a position to support the show, I would truly appreciate any donations you'd be willing to make to help support the podcast. Okay, that's enough rambling from me. Let's get into today's show. This episode's guest sees the return of Derek Hansen from SprintCoach.com and StrengthPowerSpeed.com. Derek is an international sports performance consultant that has been working with athletes of all ages and abilities in speed, strength, and power sports since 1988. His coaching career started in track and field, providing instruction to sprinters of all ages, eventually working with collegiate sprinters, hurdlers, and jumpers. His career evolved rapidly, working closely with some of the top performers in the world as a coach and a consultant, including Olympic medalists, world record holders, Canadian national team athletes, and professional athletes from numerous sports. He worked as the head strength and conditioning coach for Simon Fraser University for 14 years, the first non-US member of the NCAA. He also serves as a performance consultant to numerous professional teams in the NFL, NBA, MLS, and NHL, as well as major NCAA Division I programs throughout North America, specializing in speed development, strategic performance planning, return to competition protocols, and neuromuscular electrical stimulation programming. Derek is asked to speak on speed development and high-performance training on a regular basis for major events around the world and has authored a number of book chapters and journal articles on these subjects. Fuck me, Hansen. That's a fine bio. On this episode, Derek and I discuss what's new with Derek since we last spoke. I asked Derek, what is the role of a sports performance consultant? 
What is his process when he consults? How does he deal with any staff who perceive him as a threat to the role when he comes in as a consultant? I asked Derek, how does he stay in communication with his consultant clients? I asked Derek, does he seek feedback on his own performance as a consultant? I asked Derek about what strategies he puts in place to manage his circadian rhythms, sleep, nutrition, and exercise when he travels. I asked Derek about executing some high CNS stimuli on the low days of the high-low model. I asked Derek, what, if any, objective feedback measures did he or does he use when he applies the high-low model? I asked Derek, how did Charlie come up with the high-low model? I asked Derek, what is he currently reading? I asked Derek if there's anything he does on a daily basis that's essential to his day. I asked Derek what is the biggest thing he has learned since we last spoke in 2015. I asked Derek how does he learn. I asked Derek how can you decide if someone is an expert. I asked Derek if he wasn't Canadian, where would he have liked to have been from? We get a good laugh out of Derek there. I asked Derek how was the time in New York City with Pat Davidson and Doug Kutijan. I asked Derek if he only had one year left on planet Earth. How would he spend that year and why? And finally, I asked Derek if he could invite five people to dinner, dead or alive, who would he invite and why? Guys, this was a savage conversation with Derek. He's an absolute legend and I hope you really enjoy it. Derek, you absolute beauty. We're recording. Thank you so much for our 10 minutes before we even start recording here. Had a nice little conversation. Or Yeah, you, we, we have to have the uncensored conversation first, man. So. Yeah, yeah. Usually I record it. I shouldn't record that time. Anyway, but, uh, <laughs> anyway, it was mostly me talking. See, what I always do is I burn the ears off my guests uh, pre-show so then I can kind of get it all off my chest so I can shut the fuck up and let them speak then for the rest of the podcast. Just uh, a reminder here too. So this is my show. Uh, swearing is encouraged, as always. Awesome. Uh, and any profanities, burping, farting, whatever else. So I'm expecting uh, expecting high things from you, Derek, so don't let me down. Um, but this, you were back on 2015. It was the first time we spoke. I actually, that that show was around the chapter you wrote for uh, Joycey's book, jo- Joycey and Daniel Owenden's book, The High Performance Training for Sports. Yep. We, we wrote that chapter on um, sprinting, hamstrings and sprinting, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, I was, I think the, they wanted something about, um, like, I think they initially asked me to talk about like weightlifting for speed and I'm like, well, that's ridiculous. So I said, (laughs) why don't we talk about like how you transition somebody and things that you look at, um, you know, in spite of the, the weight program, I I don't even know if I talked about weights, but it's like, let's just talk about speed because everybody thinks they're so connected, but you know, they're not. So, um, yeah, so I I think it was pretty well received. I have no idea. Like, I think they paid me a hundred bucks or something. <laughs> so like, and you're still yeah, waiting, yeah. and you're still waiting for it. Where the fuck is the money, Joyce? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Whatever. It's going, it's going. But since uh, since we last spoke in 2015, what's been going on? I think you were still at Simon Fraser then. Um, but anyway, fit, fill us in on what's happened over the last three years. Yeah, I think uh, we talked about this previously. Was that you know. Um, I think when you're with an organization, you find that, um, <laughs> and I don't want to say this badly, but they kind of own you, right? So one, you're kind of, uh, you got to filter what you say about certain things. And two, you just have your time taken up to actually pursue things that you want to do. Yeah. So when you, you know, when I decided to leave there, I said, okay, uh, now I get to do what I want to do. And, um, I think I'd put enough time, like, I think I was there for like 14 or 15 years 
So that's a fairly good sample size of working with different sports and athletes. Mm. And I kind of know what works like, and I'm not saying that um, sort of boastfully. I'm just saying like this worked, this didn't work. Okay. This is what I'm going to go with. Um, and I found that the simple stuff tends to work better. Um, and uh, you know, yeah. And, and, and slowly through that process, I uh, started working with uh, professional teams on a consulting level and doing more presentations and trying to get out there. So it was a, I would say it was a relatively smooth transition. It wasn't, wasn't difficult. I mean, everybody's always ruled a little by fear, like, Oh, I got a, a consistent paycheck coming in and, you know, and I get my dent, my teeth cleaned, I get it covered. But, um, you know, there's ways around that. And, and so my wife's very supportive. She has a good job. She has a good medical plan. So it's easy to make those decisions when you're with somebody who supports you. Mm-hmm. And so, so yeah, since then, uh, it's been, been pretty good in terms of having independence to do the projects that I want to do and spend more time on educational things as well. Um, and I think that's, that's, that seems to be where, you know, I still coach people now and then, but not as frequently. I, I don't feel like I get the same value out of it, but it kind of, you know, even when I was working with Charlie Francis, like he was still coaching. Um, and it would just be one, pe- one person or a small group of people here and there. And I think it was really just to reaffirm that you still know how to coach and yeah. you, and maybe if anything, now that you're a little more removed, you can actually do it the way you want to do it. Um, and I think you get better results because you have that experience and you kind of take, you kind of take yourself out of it and look back in and you see it a little differently. <clears throat> and I think that's helped too. Um, because as you know, when they throw like, Hey, you got to train these 15 guys and warm them up in five minutes and I want them fast, but you only got 10 minutes. You're like, Oh geez, like this is ridiculous. Like I'm being told how to coach by somebody who's a moron <laughs> and um, this really isn't working. Right. So when you have that time to do it the way you want to do it, as we discussed, um, things work better. Like, you know, just get, let me do what I'm good at doing. So that's, that's been a lot better as well. Yeah. Yeah. So just before I move on to asking about consultant con- consulting, um, what came to my mind there, you spoke about your wife was, I remember asking Bill Hartman, like what, what are, what was like some of the biggest lessons he's learned in his life? And he says, pick your partner wisely. <laughs> And uh, so that, so it's just uh, kind of reaffirmed that because, you know, from a couple of conversations I've had, like I had uh, Tim uh, DeFrancesco, who used to be the head uh, strength and conditioning coach of the Lakers. And like, he was just saying like how supportive his wife was. And, you know, then like, I'll never forget as well. I was in the car one day with Mike Boyle. And I just said, Mike, who's your best friend? And I swear, like, I'll, I'll remember this the day I die. Without a flinch, he answered in literally 0.5 seconds. He goes, oh, my wife, of course. You know, the way he said it, so yeah. not, you know, because I was only like 22. Like, and to me, the concept of like your wife being your best mate just didn't compute. You know, I was thinking your best mates, like your mate from school, high school. But he just goes, oh, Sydney or Cindy, of course, like my wife. And I was yeah. like, that's a pretty cool thing to say. So just a complete digression there that, you know, that having a supportive spouse is a very, very important thing. Yeah. And, you know, you always ask yourself, like when you're around, even your mates, right. And you're like, okay, if we had to go to war, who would I want in the foxhole with me? And that's mm-hmm. kind of the same thing, right? It's different if you want to go out and just have some, some beers and stuff and pints and, and, oh, I want to go with that guy. Okay. Now it gets really serious. Who do you really want by your side? And I think, um, even in, in career situations, I think people have to think about that. Like it's always nice Mm -hmm. to be around people that 
that like you and make you feel good and all that. But when it comes down to it, you got to choose your partner as well, like you said. And, and um, especially when it is about life situations or, or things that really matter. So yeah, definitely. Another thing that came to my mind is the answer there was, I see this an awful lot. And I wonder, like, I'd like to get your take on this. Just going off that the way you said, like, you know, if you're in a foxhole, who's the, who is the people you really want? I see this an awful lot in, in the profession of, of sports performance where people give recommendations for people that they know, but they never worked with, which is a yep, huge, all the time. Yeah, all the time you see this. It's like, oh, yeah, hey, great guy, great guy. It's like, yeah, but you guys know each other like online or have met each other at seminars <laughs> or conferences, but you've never worked together day in, day out. Like that relationship can turn very different then when you see the same person day in, day out. And now it's not like that. Oh, we see each other four times a year at a conference and we're the best of mates. It's like, yeah, what do you like when you're locked in together and see each other 80 hours a week? Are you still going to be the, you know, I'm not saying that it mightn't. It, it could end up being like that you two are the guys that would, would soldier together and die for another. But, I constantly see this where like, yeah, I, I, yeah, good guy, give him a reference. You're not going to like, it's kind of like, but you guys never like worked or, or sweated together or, you know, yeah. just, like know each other. Like if you, it seems like you've seen that too. Oh yeah. Some of my best friends are 3000 miles away. Um, yeah. For that reason, right. <laughs> because you talk to them once a week and, and it's like, okay, yeah. But you know, when you have to hand the guy your car keys to your uh, Bentley and he's got to park it properly and he scratches it up, well, that's a different situation. But yeah, uh, I, I don't know how it works. I don't know yeah. how people uh, give these referrals and endorsements. Um, it's purely because they like the person though, Derek. That's yeah. Yeah. Or that person doesn't piss them off or, you know, um, I just think, I'm very careful about that. Like I'm very careful about who I refer and who I recommend yeah, for those too, reasons. Yeah. yeah. Cause I don't, you know, you don't know if you don't know them and something bad happens, well, that's on you. So. And, yeah. and the, the, the reason why that came to my mind too, is I remember one day someone asked me, can you recommend some coaches? And like my, my immediate reaction was, Oh yeah, sure. All my mates are coaches. And then when I sat down, Todd was like, but I've only ever coached with maybe like four or five of them. Like I actually can't. Yeah. I actually yeah, like, can't recommend that many. You know what I mean? It's like, uh, hey, which guys do you want to date your sister? <laughs> you know, it's kind of, you got to think like that, right? Well, I know what that guy thinks, you know, but yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> you definitely have to really take stock of the issue and go, okay, um, what is that, what is that person truly good at? What are they going to fit with that in that scenario? Have I ever seen them in a situation where shit has gone bad? Yeah. Like, you know, and if you haven't, it, you don't know, you don't know what's going to pop up. And I hear it all the time. Like this is an aside, like I was talking to a friend about, Oh, we should bring this person on to work with us. And then, well, he doesn't return calls. And then you find out, Oh, he's an alcoholic. Oh, you know, his, his, uh, he's got a, his marriage is breaking up and his kids hate him. You're like, well, okay, that makes sense. Right. So you have to have that spider sense a bit, I guess. Yeah. yeah. You know, and, and the other thing is, um, don't, you know, don't go any into anything hasty, like take your time. Like, I think even now I'm hearing about hirings that are happening and it's like, well, we got to hire somebody and, oh, let's hire all the, the, uh, the, the sort of the underlings, the people that are in these positions. And then we'll hire the supervisor later. It's like, no, no, hire the supervisor first and then figure out who he's wants to work with. And it happens all the time because people think they have these weird deadlines. We got to hire it. We, you know, no, you don't. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. nothing's going on in the off season, 
you know yeah. so it's uh, crazy uh, just with the hiring, because I've asked this too. I remember I was talking to Fergus Connolly like about the hiring process, you know, and a few other guys. And like, I still think probably the, I think, but usually, well, at a pro sport level, it's 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 you know it's harder. But I'm talking about maybe younger coaches getting into the field first. I mean, the sort of best way is is that sort of internship route because it's kind of like that three month interview process you know so sure. that is more of a slow cook you know it is this person the right individual to do, do he or she like do they fit in here with this culture and i know it's kind of more harder at a you know at a pro level where like you know you're not usually going to take a coach who's been with an organization right you're interning first or but i suppose you could say this and it's a trial basis with full salary for three months and we'll see how it goes or whatever you know but yeah i definitely agree that it's kind of like i originally heard of Alan cosgrove his kind of thing was you know higher slow fire fast type thing you know i yep I think they just, yeah, it does need to be more of a slow cooked process in terms of. Yeah, everybody has to go through probation, man. You know, <laughs> whether you're re entering society or we're going to hire you on our organization. Like, yeah. I wouldn't have a problem with that. They said, well, we're going to do three months. And then if that works out, uh, then we can negotiate a longer contract. Yeah. Like, okay. What do I have to worry about? All right. So you, you moved from Simon Fraser into this consultancy role, and you seem to be very fucking busy. <laughs> Uh, I don't be on social media much, but anytime I ever see your feed coming across, you seem to be traveling. And, and also, I must say, you seem to be very happy. It seems like the, the transition is something you've, you've enjoyed and embraced. But talk about, uh, you know, what does the role entail? Like, what is it to be a consultant to these um, top um, professional organizations? I think the most important thing is you have to offer something that's practical and, and easy, like usable. Like it's, it's, you can put it into action right away. And I think it's very easy to get caught up into these conceptual discussions and philosophical discussions about how you do things and mm, big time. Yeah. Bring it in the guru. And, and it's like, okay, well, what, what, what gaps do we have to fill? And those are the questions. You have to know what questions to ask, right? Okay, so why are you bringing me in? Um, and sometimes they'll bring you in because they just want to make it look like they're bringing somebody in, right? And, oh, we're, gonna, we're doing something, right? And you can figure that out pretty quickly. Um, but some people are very specific about what they want. And that's good. I like that. It's like, okay, well, what do you guys need to work on? Well, we're having trouble with, you know, figuring out where to integrate our speed work because of the workloads in season and, and, and these issues. And I'm like, okay, well, that's good. That's, that's something that I can give you right away. Um, so the better clients are the people who, you know, just are good people who understand that they have deficiencies or they need some work in an area. And then as soon as you have somebody like that, it's very easy to put an action plan into place. Whereas if you have people who just want to hear you talk, and they might pick things that they like, you know, but don't really have a plan in place, then it's a lot more difficult. And I'm not, I'm not saying um, a lot of people are like that, but it does happen. And so your job as a consultant is to kind of steer them into areas where, you know, through your process of asking questions, like you may have to sit down and figure out what, what their issue is. Um, and if it's injuries, you know, is it because of their physical preparation plan? Is it because of how practice is being uh, implemented? Is it because uh, what happens when the, the players are away from them? You know, there are all these factors, right? And, and I even, you know, I wear the, the fatigue science sleep band. Not, and, and people say, well, you know, sleep, well, we can't control that. And it's like, well, 
it does give you a window to look into of maybe some other behavioral things like are they and i talked to the fatigue science guys about this uh, jeff zilstra and sometimes you just wonder are your players compliant like will they do stuff that you ask them to do right because you can collect all the gps that you want but that's just in the midst of them practicing and doing things. But if you actually get them to do something and it's something as simple as syncing your phone with the band, um, can you do that? And if they can't do that, um, I'd say you're going to have problems elsewhere. Right? So mm-hmm. I think, um, sitting down with people and finding out where the true issues lie is probably the, what the good consultants do, because if you just hire somebody to do what they're good at, you may miss the mark, right? Like I, I could say like, Oh, we're going to work on sprint mechanics. Right. And you get there and everybody's so bloody tired all the time because of the workloads uh, or people have injuries or they're not giving the strength coaches enough time to slot anything in anywhere. um, Then who cares about sprint mechanics? We've got all these other organizational and scheduling issues. Right. So Mm. Know what questions to ask, I think, is, is, is the art of it. So talk us through the process then. Like, so you, you kind of gave us an overview there. So when you enter an organization, like, is there a certain process or a system that like you kind of, you know, that you, you kind of use as an outline to, to guide what you're going to deliver to this organization? Yeah, like if they give me some information on what they want from me, then I, you know, then I'll, yeah, do the outline of, okay, uh, if it's in person, then we can do a presentation. We can do some practical, we can go back, do some debriefing, you know, do a presentation on other subjects. So often I get asked to do things on, um, obviously speed training, um, some return to play, a lot of return to play stuff now. So whether it's hamstring, soft tissue injuries, ACL, post ACL rehab, um, which is integrated with a lot of the running stuff I do. And then the other one is the electrical stimulation piece as part of the RTP process more. So it, it seems to be shifting more to like return to play. Um, and, so and, I will get, go ahead. Eric, so, sorry, sorry to cut in. I know it's, it's, it's uh, something I'm trying not to do, but just to ask what it's on my mind there. Are, are you mainly working with the staff or is there times where you'll also work with the players along with the staff? It's mostly with the staff. And I don't have a problem with that because I think it it, it really is, they have the relationship with the players. And when you introduce somebody new into the mix that they're unfamiliar with, it's not as, it's not a smooth a process. So you're always, and and the other thing is like, you know, it's that whole give a man a fish or teach him how to fish. I think I want to teach the staff how to fish and how to implement it because I'm not going to be there that long. I don't have the same contact time. Um, otherwise why would, why wouldn't you just hire me as an employee? And that's not, that's not the uh, sort of image I want to give to staff. Like I'm not going to come in here and do your job, right. Or, or even threaten your job. I just want to come in here and tell you what I know so that you can do it. Um, and I think that's the approach I've taken and it's worked fairly well. And I think they understand that. Like I'm not, as we talked about, um, I'm, I'm, I don't want to be an employee of a pro sports mm. team. I understand how limiting that can be to, to a lot of the projects I want to do. And, and you share the same thoughts. So, um, so as long as they understand that off the bat and that I'm here to facilitate them doing a better job, then it, it seems to work better. But yeah, on occasion for like return to play, there will be some hands-on stuff. But again, I'm working with the athlete 
to show the the practitioner, the athletic trainer, or the the, the the strength coach, like this is how you do it. This is what I look for, and then I step away. So, so you like to get feedback from them initially, initially in terms of like, listen, what is it that you want me to facilitate or help you guys out with? But is there still specific things you'll always want to see inside every organization? Like, let's say, do you would you ever go in and just like observe and? have a look at the communication. Like, can, do, you, do you stay in the background sometimes and just see how things flow from an organization standpoint, from a communication standpoint? Um, do you give like feedback on that? Like, so like, for instance, you may go in and they might say, well, we think our biggest issues are this. And then in your mind from being there for maybe a day or two, you could already see some things that maybe that they don't see because it's such, it's so habitual now to the environment that they don't even see some of the potential cancers that are growing. Like, so, I know you're saying that you'd like to get feedback from them initially to know what to deliver to them, but are there still certain things that you will always investigate with any organization that you, you go into consult with? Yeah. And this, this is not a sport issue. This is a human behavior and big time um, understanding what they want to hear. Right. And, 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 you know, I'm not so naive to think that, oh, I'll just tell them what I think and then they'll do it and they won't be offended. Like, you got to be careful. So you can see some pretty egregious things. Now, it's up to you to decide <laughs> what battle you want to pick, mm. right? So you see some things and, okay, well, where's that coming from? Like, what's the motivation behind them? Like, you can do it with um, uh, fitness testing, right? So you see they do some ridiculous fitness test. And you're like, okay. First, you have to find out who came up with that because if it came from the head coach, I'm not changing that, right? So if it's the head coach and then the strength coach is, or, you know, has to implement it, then good luck. Like then you just try to you know, build something around that so people don't get hurt, but you're not going to say, oh, this is asinine. Who's doing, why, why are you guys doing this? Well, then it's the head coach and then that's, it puts you in a difficult situation. So bye-bye retainer. Yeah. So, uh, you have to be careful. You can't, you know, it's just like if your wife comes in and says, do I look fat in this dress? Like, you know, you got to be careful how you answer that. The truth yes, is one you do. thing, you right? Do start it out. Yeah. Like, I'm pregnant. I don't care. It's still, it's still gross. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. No, I love love handles. Um, but you know, again, that's, that's a human behavioral organizational behavioral thing that you have to manage and go, okay, well, I see that we can improve things on the warm-up side. We can do this a little sooner in the RTP process. And, but, you know, I mean, that, that is, that is the, the one tough thing for me is to understand why I'm being brought in and what I'm kind of permitted to comment on and what yeah, I have to be yeah. careful of. Right. Yeah, so, yeah. and, and yeah, like I, I, I see it every day where I see like, well, this person really needs to improve in this. Are they prepared to hear that? Mm. Um, like are, they, are they mature enough to feedback? I know what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. yeah uh, and, and I, I'm not, a, you and I aren't immune to that. Like I do some fucked up shit too. I'm sure. Right where people are like, Hey, you really got to change that. Right. Like, you know, uh, my wife is really good at telling me about stuff, but, <laughs> um, you know, and do I change, do I care? Do I want to hear that? You know, I got to keep improving myself so that I am immune to those types of comments and I actually enact them and, and, and 
you know, change my mindset. But I think, yeah, uh, there's some things where you just go, I hope I can move the needle a little bit here this way on this issue. And then when they see that that works really well, maybe it kind of opens the door for yeah. some of these other things. Right. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you, you have to be careful. Um, and these organizations and you know, um, there's a lot of, uh, they're neurotic, they're paranoid. Everybody's like, Oh, everything's top secret. Like people will bring me into their facilities and like, Oh, don't mention that you work for this team or that team. Like, I'm not an idiot. Okay. I'm not going to tell them about I, all the I, I love, I love when they say, Oh, you can't take any photos. I'm like, well, of a fucking squat rack. Like what? Like, yeah, yeah, don't, yeah. Don't, don't take photos of the facility. So like, like yeah, yeah. Who yeah. gives a shit? But it's, yeah, it's, it's okay to, you know, anyways, play with your junk there. Nobody cares, but yeah, don't take a picture of this. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, and I think that's all part of the, you know, that that's maybe one of the reason why I don't want to be working full time in those situations because there is this paranoia like, oh, we lost the game. Everybody's going to get fired because we lost that game. And, you know, it's obviously my fault. Um, and I just don't want to be part of that. Um, but I think a lot of it's unnecessary. It's like the whole mental toughness piece. Like people got to suffer to learn how to deal with, you know, uh, adversity in a game, even though it's a technical issue. Uh, I just think it's just misplaced. A lot of the stuff is misplaced. No, you don't have to be paranoid. Um, you know, no, Bill Belichick isn't, doesn't have a secret camera on me as I'm walking through your facility to see what your squat racks look like, you know, or what brand of protein powder you're using on Tuesday. So, you know, get over yourself. But at the same time, that's not why they brought me in. I'm not supposed to comment on that stuff. So I'm not going to say, you know, lighten up, buddy. But it's certainly interesting. And you've kind of touched on a question I was going to ask, which is, you know, how how do you deal with any certain members of staff that do feel threatened when you come in? So I I could imagine it happens where maybe, you know, uh, someone who's in like a head position wants you to come in, like maybe, you know, head of performance state, they want to bring Derek Hansen in. But yeah, the people who are, you know, who are um, underneath the the heads of performance, they could feel threatened by you coming in, you know, they could feel that it's a a sort of a almost, um, you know, a decoded message saying, we don't think you're actually great at your job, so we have to bring this consultant in. So, you know, they may be very uh, passive aggressive or they may be very resentful for, to your presence being there. So how do you deal with that sort of situation if it's a rose? Um, I've always felt that it's, it's best to treat people like individuals and talk to them about personal stuff. Like, Hey, you know, do you have kids? I have three kids, you know, and, and just diffuse things right away. Like uh, the, the worst thing you can do is, is Focus room my life as well. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, exactly. Like some sort of common ground. But if I start talking, like if they bring me in, about how they handle hamstring issues. And the first thing I do is I go to the athletic trainer, like, okay, what do you do? Like, you know, yeah, yeah. you know, right at, right there, you're putting them on the defensive because the assumption is that they are doing something wrong mm. as opposed to, um, speaking more generally. Um, you know, what do you guys do? And then if they say something that actually is good or is even close to good, like you compliment them on it. Like, Hey, that's really good. I would have done that too. Um, you know, and then, you know, you ha- again, you're, you're picking your spots yeah, when yeah, to offer your input. Right. And, and nobody, <laughs> nobody wants you to come in and say, this is wrong. This is wrong. This is wrong. I would do it this way. Cause this, I'm, I, I did really well with this. Nobody, I don't care what you think. Yeah. Nobody wants to hear that. Nobody wants to say like, 
Robbie, you know, you should really get a microphone stand and you should probably like just brush your hair properly and get some glasses where I can see your eyes and just wear something neutral so that, you know, I, I don't think you're a fan of that team. I, cause I'm offended. Cause why aren't you wearing my shirt? You know, like nobody wants to hear that. Um, so, you know, just kind of check yourself first. Um, you don't have to solve everybody's problem right away. And I think if you try to do that, you are going to step on toes right away. And, you know, I've le- you learned the hard way. You make mistakes and you think, well, they're bringing me in because they think I'm special and I have to do something special. And it's like, no, no, you know, you could give them 100 great solutions and they're going to forget 99 of them. So yeah. why don't you just start with one, right? So I, I just think it's keep it general, put it, you know, develop some sort of personal relationship because that's going to be sustainable. It doesn't matter how good your solution is. If they hate you, you're not coming back. Yeah. So, and so, um, what is the follow-up strategy after you initially get involved? Like, uh, do you stay like communication wise, do you stay in a, you know, communication with the staff there? Like, would you email them a phone call on a regular, like in a weekly basis or a bi-weekly basis? Is there like a sort of a Slack group or something like, you know, how does the follow-up and communication involve there? Or is it more open-ended where like, listen, I'm here whenever you guys need or like, it, how does that look with, with you? Like, yeah, I, I mean, again, the, the people that are switched on will almost schedule you like, okay, we're going to do uh, three hours. Like I'll do a lot of online consultations too yeah, because yeah. the travel is is onerous, right? So um we'll schedule a couple hours and then at the end of a certain phase or the end of the season we'll do a debrief and so <clears throat> those are pre-scheduled which which is nice because it just makes sense um and then other times somebody just wants to talk to you for a couple hours and then you leave it with them and i will i will send them messages like um hey just checking in see how you guys doing i saw the result for the season things look good hope you're doing well uh have a happy new year, whatever. And again, you know, touch on like personal, hope your family's doing well. And, uh, you know, it's it, really, it's up to them. Like, mm-hmm. I'm not going to force them and say, you have to do this. It's not like going to the chiropractor and you have to do 10 sessions with me. Um, who knows? Right. Um, so, but I, I think you want to be present, but you don't want to be annoying. You don't want to yeah. be like, you know, um, and I'm always like, I, I think I've come to the point where if, people don't like me and they don't want to listen to my stuff. Hey, I'm fine with that. I got other people like you have to find your audience. I'm sure there's lots of comedians out there whose jokes don't appeal to anybody, but they have a certain audience that that likes them and they have a following. Right. So great. I, I, I understand that. Yeah. So So, like a big takeaway from there is just like communication is just vital, you know, and, and just having, having, you know, good development of your EQ, not just your IQ. So again, I suppose like we've heard it a lot of times, no one really cares how much you know until they know how much you care type type of job, you know? And, uh, and you have to, and I, I will say this about that. You have to put yourself in situations where you're forced to, to into those scenarios. And it's not just yeah. job scenarios. Like, like if you have kids and you got to go talk to their teacher or their coach, or you, uh, you're, you know, you're dealing with your spouse and the in-laws and you, I mean, it just forces you to deal with different scenarios and different conflicts and things so that when you have to deal with it in a, a consulting role or a job situation, it's easier. But if you kind of go back and isolate yourself and just, you know, go after people on Twitter, or, you know, whatever, Facebook, it's not the same. Like, you know, handling yourself one-on-one and speaking with people is, an, is a skill, right? Yeah. So. 
Last question there on consultancy uh, before we move on. Do you ever ask for feedback after you've worked with an organization? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like, uh, is this working? Um, how do you feel? Like, do you need more support? Uh, I have a little, you know, I even have questionnaires that I'll send right. to them. Right. And um, sometimes people, um, you know, fill them out. Sometimes they don't. They're like, yeah, we're happy. Right. Um, well, we're happy with your service. I don't know if they're actually happy, but um, I, yeah, do th- I, think- I do think that's important. Like, I think that does show a, a, a good level of maturity and growth and development when a person actively seeks for feedback on their own performance, you know? Yeah, I don't have a problem with it. Like I, you know, nobody likes hearing bad news, but um, you have to kind of filter it and go like if I love looking at Amazon reviews and TripAdvisor and seeing like, so I'm looking for a hotel and, oh, look, that looks like a good one. And you'll say, you'll see like 99.9% of them are like, this was the best experience I ever and had. And you'll see that one forever. and you'll always click on the yeah. one. Just <laughs> There's say, one where like, this stuff is horrible. They attacked me. They beat me up in the corner and then left me, you know, and they're like, what the hell happened there? Like, I would love to be, and to see what actually happened, right? So um, as long as you get a predominance of positive feedback, I'm not saying just throw those other ones out, but you got to check yourself. Like I said, check yourself. Like, okay, yeah, maybe yeah. I did speak too loudly on the phone to that person. I don't know. But yeah, it, it's it, you You have to be open to feedback. You know, Otherwise, it's, it's got, like I, I do the same thing too. Like, yeah, you see like, you know, like fucking 500 reviews and like no, 490 are great. And like, eight are like middle of the road two are terrible you read the two terrible ones you're just like these two people weren't loved as children obviously yeah what happened to them yeah what happened to them they're the fucking black swans but uh it's funny i remember uh just i was looking at fergus's book uh Connolly, fergus Connolly's book game changer and, you know the majority of the reviews were all like you know excellent book you know well book. and there's like there's this one review and whoever this fucker was he's like you know this book ter- it's not even referenced it's like Actually, it is referenced anyway, but anyway, we'll move on. And it's just like, this person's not even a sports scientist or an SSC. It's like, who the fuck is this? You know, this person obviously, like, needs some love in their life. It's just like, I don't know. I don't know. Like, like, think, like, it actually took effort out of someone's day to be a fucking prick to write that, you know? Like, there was nothing constructive in it. Like, again, there's a difference between, like, being an asshole in terms of, like, giving out and then actually being constructive with feedback. So, it's just funny. That just reminds me of that with the Amazon reviews. <laughs> But Derek Mir, I'm very interested to ask about how you deal with all the travel that you do in terms of like your own training, your nutrition, your recovery, how you, uh, your sleep, um, how you manage, you know, um, your circadian rhythm, you know, changing time zones. What sort of strategies have you got in place? Because I'm sure now at this stage, you know, you're, you're fairly well traveled that you have some sort of go-to strategies to help buffer any of the fatigue from all the travel. Yeah, well, again, uh, being aware of this the circumstances is important and like i said like with the 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 fatigue science guys the uh, just being able to look at something and go to remind you like okay i have to i have to manage a situation so if i go to new york it's only a three-hour time difference but it does it does have an impact right and it's like if you go from the west coast pacific northwest and then you go and you're staying in downtown manhattan uh, it's like somebody like, you know, you know, change your icing sugar with cocaine, right? And you're just like, oh my God. Um, 
<laughs> and it's just a different vibe altogether. And so you have to manage that and you have to make sure you get the sleep. And sometimes I'll be honest with you. Like sometimes I just go, okay, if it's like a two, three day trip, I'm like, whatever, I'm sleeping like two hours a night. I'm going to get through this and then I'm going to yeah. you know, take care of it on the back end. Or <clears throat> the other part of it is the concept of developing reserves is important. So, you know, if I know I'm going on a trip, I want to make sure I get all my workouts in leading up to that trip yeah. because I may have some inactivity, right? And so if you've done that, you have an allowance now that you can kind of spend when you're away. And and then of course, when you get back, you got to get back on the on the horse and, and make sure that that's taken care of. So I think you, it depends on the duration of the trip. It depends on, um, you know, what time you're going to have to do these things. And the great thing about being uh, involved with sports and fitness is that you're always kind of around a facility. Yeah. So, you know, you can do these things. Um, the tougher part sometimes is the food piece. And, you know, it's funny the the intermittent fasting thing is interesting because I mean, I kind of do that because I just have no choice a lot of time. It's like, well, okay, well, I'm going to skip a, a couple of meals because I'm so busy and I don't even understand that I'm hungry. I think um, co- I think for years, coaches were just doing that out of just pure necessity. Yeah. Like most coaches do because most coaches are up early. So they're like, fuck, I don't really have time to eat a lot of breakfast. And they kind of work all the way through to lunch and they might have something small. Then, and then like they're coaching for the evening and then like they have nothing to you know, they mightn't have anything until they get home that night. It depends on what time. So, yeah, I think, like, a lot of coaches actually were, like, kind of doing almost 16-8 type fasts, you know, yeah. in, in the past without even realizing it. There's, like, a whole Costco effect uh, where, uh, like, I went – I don't go very often, but I had to go get some – I got some tires put on my truck at Costco, so I had an hour to kill. So I'm walking around Costco, and it's, like, Carb City, right? It's, like, every form of carbohydrate is in Costco. And so then you buy it, right? Cause it's there and it's available. And, uh, and then when you start eating it, you want more of it. Right. But mm-hmm. if you deprive yourself, you find that deprivation actually is a habit too. Right. So it works very well if, if you do go without some stuff and you go like, well, I guess I didn't really need that. Yeah. And so that's, you know, that's, that's what I'm trying to do with a lot of the exercise, uh, a training too is, um, yeah, we have 50 bazillion exercises we can do but I want to see if you can get shit done with five, right? Like that, that would be the challenge. Like mm. here, here's like, they have cooking shows like that. Like you have to use the iron chef. You have to use these ingredients. Let's make a great dish out of these ingredients. We should yeah. do that for strength coaches, right? You got five exercises, man. Let's see what you can do. To be honest, five's even too it's much. It's too much. Yeah, 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 yeah. What can you do with just fucking one? Like Dan John's like just one lift a day. But it's so true that that's one thing as I've matured, as both uh you know as both a person as well as a coach is that like you know that it's i remember mike boyle said this when i was younger too he goes cliches are cliches for a reason you know so like less is more quality over quantity and you know i've often said this on their podcast about jack white you know jack white from the white stripes and obviously you now he's, he's out on his own in the last few years but he always speaks about like constraints and how constraints lead to more creativity so like yes. when he was with the white stripes right they could only wear three colors red white black that was it how many different ways can he set up a stage and the clothes they wore those three colors when they played live no set lists none so like they went out on stage and meg was on the drums and she was like i have no clue what he's going to pull out his arse here like he could fucking do anything like and i have to attune to it like now in the moment uh there was only ever three things that could happen at once in terms of the 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 um the performance so it could only be vocals 
drums and one piece of an of a of a instrument so either piano or the drums or or, or sorry piano or guitar um and what else was there too oh he'd also too he would he would play songs like say on the piano that he'd never played before on the piano like versions of it like just live in the moment yeah. or he'd play songs that were originally on the piano on the album on his guitar that he never played for like just live in the moment and when he was interviewed he was like to him it's fucking robbery of someone's money if you just go out and do the same mundane performance to him it just was it just destroyed creativity oh and also he played with horrendous pieces of equipment so if you watched him <laughs> live i swear to god there there's loads of clips from where he's playing and his strings constantly break in the middle of a song like and it just shows the level of mastery this man had. Oh, and sorry, and the other thing too, Meg was a fucking terrible drummer, like terrible. And no, she obviously got better as the years went on. But like, like when they started originally as a band, she never played the drums. And like literally like their first few gigs, like she'd never played drums at all. And they, there she was playing in front of people. And Jack was like, just play this beat. Like, just do that. Just do that. Yep. But like he really constantly constrained and constrained. And then you just think about like Newell's model you know, constraint-led approach and, like, you know, how in terms of, like, emergent um, movement um, movements come from a constraint-based approach, yeah. you know? And it's just, like, uh, it's just funny you mention that, too. Like, it's the same, we can apply the same thing then to physical preparation. We can apply the same thing to nutrition. Like, it's funny, I don't know about you, but some of the best meals I ever have is when, like, you're starving and you're like, fuck, I don't really have much time to get, like, I haven't got much left in the fridge or the cupboard. And you just quick something together, like, three, four ingredients. You're like, that meal was unbelievable. Yeah. three or four ingredients so it definitely i think constraints lead to creativity it's a yeah I deprivation just, yeah. is the new activation right like if uh, you you know like you know, water can taste amazing if you don't have it for like most of the day right hunger is the best sauce that's your thing too because i don't know has this ever happened to you you know you're st- like you are starving and you eat this meal and that was the greatest meal I ever had. and then you go make that meal again another time when you're not quite as hungry and you eat and go and that wasn't quite as nice. Why it was nice? Because like, when you edit, like, you would have fucking had anything and it would have been the nicest thing in the world. So I definitely agree with that deprivation uh, quote. Yeah, when I lived in Montreal, um, we'd go out and we'd all get plastered and then uh, by 4 a.m. you hadn't eaten anything, you're dehydrated. We'd go to this one slice pizza place where it's like a buck a slice. And it sounds it like hell. Prob- yeah, yeah. And then I went there one time during the day. I'm like, this is horrible. This is disgusting. Yeah. yeah, I know exactly what you're saying. Um, high-low model so i told you i had this question for you beforehand mm-hmm. so you know anyone that's just knows knows the high-low model and that you know charlie pop popularized the high-low model um can you speak about doing high intensity stimuluses on the low day as well like how you know what does that look like so just before you answer i've heard like you know i think it was basically buddy who originally said to me he's like you know you can do high intensity stuff on the low days as long as the volume is low um, and I've also seen other models where, you know, so people may do an acceleration day and then the next day early, like, you know, well, not early, but the next day they'll do their speed endurance stuff because the intensity isn't quite as high because it's more, you know, it's more enduring stuff. And there's a little bit of fatigue about from the day before. So they can still kind of work on the speed endurance, still get something from it. And then they'll go low day, then another high day, then a low day, then another high day. So they kind of go high, medium, high-ish, low, high, low, high. So they're getting four kind of hits in a week. Um, but anyway, listen, you're well more versed than me. So kind of what are your thoughts on that, like doing high-intensity stimuli on the low days? Yeah, I think the the important thing to say in the, uh, at the outset here is that 
you know, Charlie set up these concepts to, uh, again, to educate people and create awareness. It wasn't like he did exactly all of this stuff by yeah. rote. Cause if yeah. you actually spent time with him, he was very precise in what he did and he didn't stick to rigid models. Right. So the whole point of the high low model was like, okay, yeah, you have all these CNS, uh, intensive activities on one day and then you have a more of like a recovery general fitness day and then you just alternate between those which does work it does it does work quite well especially if if people are used to not having an organized approach right i've had a lot of athletes come to me where they just piled on work every day and the quality of the work sucked so um so we switched them to a high low model yeah they they flourished very well now if you want to get more precise and you want to work up the performance ladder, you have to be uh, much more um, precise about when you introduce a stimulus and when you pull it out. And then even the, 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 qual- the I would say the quantification of what is high and what is low and what percentage can be moved very, very um, uh, minutely in any direction uh, depending on the scenario. So you can still have somebody sprint, but if you get them down to about 95% or 96% of their best time, um, that's a lot easier, but it's still more profound than a lot of other things you could do. And then, like you said, you, if you start modulating the volume a bit too, and say you're used to doing, um, 600 meters of speed, well, doing 200 is not that taxing, right? Especially if you open up the recoveries, right? So, you know, if you're a good coach, you understand that the subtleties can be manipulated in your favor. Mm. And, um, but it does also depend on the reserves that you've built up over time. So if you, during the development period, if athletes have been exposed to speed work, like, you know, on a consistent basis, if they have done all of their aerobic base work and they have their strength work in place, further down the line, now you can introduce these higher volumes and higher intensities of things and small, you know, in different doses, and it's not going to hurt them. It's going to stimulate them and it's going to activate them. So you can't like every, you know, I, I talked about this microdosing uh, concept and it was, it was more just to get attention. Now everybody's an expert in microdosing and it's gone to shit. So, um, but the prerequisites are more important than the actual workouts down the line so if you don't have Mm -hmm. maximal strength capabilities um you can't take advantage of it like bench press wasn't it one with charlie he used bench press with ben johnson because he was good at bench press so if he's bench pressing 450 pounds on a regular basis he can come in at like 375 or 360 and it's still really intense you know but it's not as intense relative to what he's used to. So he could use that as a safe stimulus to kind of activate motor units. Now, if my bench press is 125 pounds, that's my max. You're just not, you know, tissues and things are made of the same components, right? And, 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 and the neurotransmitters in your system, it's all the same for everybody. But if, if you're not conditioned to take advantage of those things in the right way, you're not going to move the needle for those people who who don't have those abilities. So it's context specific. It's like, okay, what athlete am I working with? Well, it's a veteran athlete who's achieved all these things. So I can come in with smaller doses throughout, maybe even on consecutive days and have a great impact. But if it's a young athlete and I'm doing smaller doses every day, they don't have the output characteristics to really 
create an adaptation. So you need larger volume. Volume is more important than intensity probably. Yeah. Uh, having said that, quality of movement and if, you know, making sure mechanically everybody's moving well is across the board important, right? But I don't know if that answered your question. But no, it's, it, does. it does, yeah. yeah. So what I can take away from that is that you know, what's, what's stimulatory for one individual could be developmental for another. And not only that, but what was previously even developmental could then be stimulatory for an individual later on in their career because because they're at they're at a they're at a point now where they can output like a lot more like their output capabilities are higher. So you know, in terms of what used used to be a developmental load is now just stimulatory load, you know. And then obviously, so so there's intra and inter individual differences, given on where a person is in terms of their training age, in terms yeah. of their training history, in terms of their actual genetics, and you know, in terms of their whole physiological profile. Um, which we know, you know, there's obviously different profiles when it comes to, to athletes. You know, if we take a sprinter, you know, you get your guys who are a little more sort of, you know, neurologically wired. Uh, you know, there's this big thing like there's like the more sort of mechanical, you know, versus the more elastic type guys and, you know, how they have different profiles in terms of their neurological output. But yeah, what I, what I kind of take away from that is that as I kind of opened up this this answer with, or, or my take, it's not really an answer, but what I'm getting away from that is, you know, that as a coach, you need to be aware that over the course of an athlete's career, we'll just take an individual athlete, that again, what was originally a developmental load will, won't be a developmental load as, as, as they develop. It, it'll probably become more of a stimulatory load. And then also there's going to be difference from one athlete to another. So again, a, a developmental load from one athlete could just be stimulatory to another athlete where vice versa. You could take a stimulatory load from an athlete, give it to another one, and it's like it crushes them because like it's not within their capabilities to recover from, from a work capacity standpoint. So again, as you said, it's all context dependent. Yeah, and it's important, and and that's why it's really important that you work with a lot of athletes over a period of time, and you have a huge sample size to draw from for all of the specific scenarios you're going to encounter in the future. And if you haven't, and that's why you know we you see how people will get promoted to like, oh, this person's in charge of you know head strength coach, like, oh, he's got five years experience. Oh, okay, uh, that's not good. Like, I, I don't care what you say. I don't. There, there, there's no prodigies. There's no coaching prodigies, right? Mm. Like you have to have that experience in accumulated somewhere. Some people learn faster than others, but you have to draw from a large sample size, right? And, and you have to know what dosage people will respond to in different scenarios. Like uh, one of my good friends is, uh, he's very high up in the DEA in the US and he's, he's an expert on opiates, right? And so you'll, you'll, you'll hear about people who will take fentanyl and it'll kill them, right? But then there's people who've built up through different opiates so that now fentanyl is their only um, a solution for their pain, right? But they've built it up. So uh, this person can stand this dosage, right? Which would topple an elephant, but because he's built it up, he takes this. Mm -hmm. And then if you got a dose down, you know, and you know, you're not going to just make him go cold turkey because that'll kill him, right? So now you got a dose back yeah. down the other way. So um, I think some of the same rules apply in training, um, whether you're tapering somebody down or building them up. Uh, whether they're 15 years old, whether they're 35 years old, you have to understand what dosage is appropriate at the right time in what sequence and, you know, at, at what time of year it's, and it's not easy. 
the, 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 you know, the, what comes to my mind there is like alcoholics, you know, like what, what, what it takes to get my father drunk. Like I don't drink. So like if I was to drink like probably a pint, I'd be hammered. Like I haven't touched alcohol since I was 17, I'm 32 now. Yes. I actually drank before it was even legal to drink, <laughs> but like I, so I don't drink, but like, again, if I was to drink pints of alcohol now, I'd be absolutely hammered. Whereas it takes about fucking 20 points to get me father even well that's an exaggeration but he, he could probably skull about eight or ten and he'd be fine because again his tolerance is, is so much higher just, just though in terms of um one thing with the high low model like in terms of objective auto regulation like what is that something that you ever utilized or did charlie ever utilize because just thinking like of someone like chris corfus and i know dan faff spoke about some of his athletes where you know they've had athletes where like they they could literally only take a high intensity stimulus like once every five days, seven days. Like that, Dan even said, like when it came to, um, Oh fucking, why is his name? Greg Rutherford. Uh, like Greg, like they really had to start spacing out like his high intensity days. Cause if, if they were, if the density pattern was too close, he just kept getting injured. Um, and so like some of these density schemes would be completely removed from, from the classic high low model. Like some guys were like, they'd have a high day and they wouldn't have their next high day for four or five days. And in Greg's case, like sometimes it was out to 10 days, you know, d- depending on, on the stimulus or, or what was, what was being applied to him on the training cycle. Like just before you answer there, objectively, like, so what Chris would use, Chris would say he, you know, he'd be timing their their speeds like you know or he'd be looking at jump numbers and you know he'd be getting some feedback from that in terms of listen like you're fried today go home you're still not recovered like was there ever any of that going on with you guys or was it more just true you know i know charlie all spoke about listen to the feet hitting the ground watch the body language but was there ever anything like objective or did you ever in the later years when, when you know coaching on your own at time fraser was there anything that you were using um I mean, you're using everything. Like, I don't know how to, I don't want to say like, you know, the, the stopwatch is obviously important in understanding what people are running from set to set or rep to rep and, and day to day is important. Um, you know, but it's not important that the athlete know that you just have to internalize it. And then it, it um, determines your decision-making moving forward. But um I don't know. There's, I, I, there's, I guess, there's a real feel. Like it's jazz. It's not yeah, yeah. classical music. It's jazz, right? There's a feel and there's a flow and there's a, and you can kind of, you can see it. You can see it in the performance. You can see it in the mechanics. Like when I first started working with Charlie, like you see somebody run by, you know, Tim Montgomery runs by and you're like, oh, he says, did you see that on the sixth step? I'm like, no, I didn't see it. No. Uh, listen, okay. I know how you feel. I, I spent three months at Altus, so like with Stu and Dan and more so with Stu and, like you'd just be watching shit and I, they'd be saying things and I'd be like, you're either all fucking lying or like, I just have a clue what's going on. Yeah. And, and so, but that, again, that takes time and, um, you know, whether or not you intervene or say something or do something is one thing, but you can observe and then you see things, you see patterns over time. So it's just patterns of behavior over time is probably yeah. more useful than one thing like, Oh shit, that this happened once. Um, and then it, it, you know, and then things shift slowly, right? You're not, oh, we got to do this different thing right now. Um, and so with the Rutherford example, uh, and again, I have no idea what, what they did, but okay. So there's a neurological component, right? 
Um, but you got to be careful. Like if you say we can only hit this guy hard once every six days. So what are those other days looking like on the relative scale? Like, and then what's happening on a tissue level versus what's happening on a, a neurological level, a central nervous system level, what's happening in terms of like what kind of physical therapy they're getting. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and then you start drawing lines like that high day might be really high for somebody else. Um, but what he considers low is still probably profoundly high compared to somebody, you yeah. know, other athletes. So yeah. goes back to what we previously spoke about just, there. Yeah, yeah. It's just all very context specific. And I, I guess what I, what I'm trying to, sorry, Derek, I guess what I'm trying to get at too is that like a lot of people, like when they initially see high, low, like, you know, it makes a lot of sense. And then they're just like, they're kind of, they kind of just rigidly apply this high, low model without knowing, like, I suppose like I interviewed Va Van Setkin there a while back and uh, the, the podcast isn't, isn't out yet. It'll be out, before though, before this podcast is out so people probably listen to it by now um but you know he talks about his windows of trainability and his whole thing is it isn't so much about volume and intensity and density it's more so about how those are timed to the athlete's system you know in, in terms of if the athlete is obviously ready to to take a certain volume or intensity or a density scheme of a of a of a training stimulus um you know, so that's kind of my question in, in terms of like, I, I don't disagree, but you know, he, they're selling a product too, that's supposed to put you in that window. But, um, and I've had stories counter to their product where it's, yeah, yeah. Said, look, it said like, this is when you should train them. Or it said, you know, you shouldn't train or you shouldn't be good here. And then somebody goes out and has the game of their life. Right. So I, I don't know, like that's one that's tool that you yeah, could use. Right. That's one tool that you can use that you factor into your decision making amongst all these other data points that you're that are in your head. But um Yeah, I mean that, that I, I, think, that, I think they're all important. The intensity, yeah. the, the volume, the timing, it's all important. It is you important. You have to decide how you put it all together. Like I just suppose in terms of the example of Chris Corfus there, you know, using sort of the biofeedback of uh, you know, time the sprints and seeing how far off they are off their best time. I mean, it does beg the question then, well, what the fuck are you going to do the day they turn up like that, the day of the meet in, in that state? Like, yeah. you know what I mean? People, yeah. People said that about Omega wave too. Like, Oh, it's a super bowl. Everybody's in the red. What do we do? Right. Just sit everybody like, you know, so uh, you have to, you know, it's, it's information, but you have to decide how actionable or when it's actionable or, you know, what, you know, you're, you have to make the ultimate coaching decision based on the information you're gathering. Right. So, um, everybody wants to make the, the smartest or most educated decision possible, but sometimes it's not possible, right? You just have to, you have to do something. So yeah. the best advice I can give people is, um, that's why this time thing is so important. Like this time at working at something, um, that's what's mastery, isn't that what it's called? Mastery it is like, it, it's all try. It's all freaking trial and error, right? Yeah. And who's the best at, at, at taking the information from that trial and error procedure, right? Like I was working with somebody yesterday with uh, electrical muscle stimulation and we're figuring pad placement, right? And if I go by the pad placement that's in the book, I'm an idiot, right? Like I got to start moving things around and, and checking responses. And, <clears throat> and I, I told the person that I was working, I'm like, this is trial and error. I hope you understand that I'm doing through and taking you through all this because I need to diagnose the situation. And the only way I can do that is you know and it's a safe mm -hmm. it's a safe scenario but i'm just saying i need to try it in different ways and get you through different movements and then i'm getting feedback from the machine because it's giving me what the milliamps are that are going through the system and the difference between left and right and you know 
you know, different muscle groups, it's giving me information. Now I have to base my decision on where we go on what they're telling me, what the machine's telling me, what I see, you know, that's, that's hard for people. That's hard for people to go, wow, that's a lot of information. But you know, the guy that's the expert air traffic controller, there's a lot of fucking judgment going on up there that, that you are trusting that guy based on his experience. Yeah. Right. Just for just before we move on um from talking about high low, like did did you have like um well I, I, was, I never make assumptions, but like did you have athletes where like their high low scheme, like did you just purely go off field? So like you could have an athlete where, you know, let's just just for the convenience of this conversation, you know, high day on Monday and you know, low day Tuesday and high day Wednesday and then, you know, low day Thursday and oh not feeling great Friday, low day and still not great Saturday, low day, high day again, you know, the next whatever Sunday. Like was it more so that would you have you auto regulate the high low system like that? Whereas like it could have been a three day low before the next high and then sometimes we went back to back high. Like just was it more sort of flexible like that? Because again I just think people see high low and they're like, oh it's just high low, high low. Yeah. Some, you know what I mean? Like I work with uh, Benicio del Toro and he's like got an Academy award, brilliant guy when it comes to like screenplay, script, dialogue, acting, whatever. And, uh, and he was taught by um, Stella Adler who taught like Marlon Brando and all these you know, great Marlon actors. Brando. Right. And so, so what he does is that he takes a script and then he essentially like takes his part and he rewrites everything, all the lines, like this is how I see the actor. Um, presented in this movie right so and i think we we're talking about something i think it was like sicario the first one and he's like ah you know i don't like how they wrote this i want to write it this way right and that was a great movie and uh so i just said why don't you just tell him like hey guys like i'm just gonna let's don't even write anything just tell me what the character is gonna be and then i gotta write it as i go along and he says no no you can't do that i need a structure upon which to make my assessments and my judgments i don't care if it's wrong I don't care if it's right, but I need a structure. So, you know, and then he does his rewrites, you know, throughout the entire film. Like he comes back, he rewrites every line, you know, five times over. He said, uh, Jack Nicholson did that. He always did rewrites during the process of the film. Right. Okay. But that hit me. Like maybe that's what high low is. Maybe it's a scaffolding upon which we assess people. Mm. Right. It's a pattern. Right. And then you throw them into the pattern and like, they self-organize and these people's respond and these people don't. And if you have the non-responders, then you make adjustments, but it is a starting point. And that's all periodization is. Everybody's like, Oh, periodization, you got to do this. And Oh, periodization sucks. You just got to wing it. Right. And it's somewhere they're both right. Right. But you do have to have a structure to start with. If you go in there saying, ah, I'm just, yeah. And Charlie Francis, if you go back, they did a lot of, uh, glycolytic work they did a lot of high reps in the weight room they did a lot of longer runs and everybody's uh, fucking talking about like oh charlie like oh it's this high low there's no metal it's like well yeah there was metal like but you know what a, you know get off your high horse like we all kind of fumble with this stuff mm. um but you have to go through the process to discover you know the solution right um and i think that's where where people miss it and i don't even know how people do their education and you know right now it's it's like it's just a shambles right like oh i want to be a strength coach i got my certification let's do this like i was really neurotic when i first started about like am i writing the right workout right and i had i bounced stuff off at charlie like is this look okay he's like he's like i don't know i can do it just try it right and i think there's not enough of that in our educational system right and i'm talking school anything there's not enough of like 
But that's that's because people are discouraged from failing. That's why, like, they're too afraid yeah. to fucking fail. Yeah. You know, whereas fail. that's how you learn. Get out there and fucking try it. Yeah, yeah. You know, we're not launching space shuttles here, um, but you know, go out and try it. And well, you know, Elon, make sure Elon, you... Elon Musk is. <laughs> yeah. Well, look at all the failure he's had, man. Oh uh, yeah, uh, he's got balls, man. You gotta appreciate what. Yeah, he yeah. Right. So he's selling flamethrowers to people. Um, yeah, no, I, I just think you have to go out there and you have to immerse yourself in the process and you have these guidelines. Yeah, you have your Omega Wave. Uh, yeah, you have, you know, a, a therapist that you're working with and you're bouncing things off them. And they all may be young people that you're working with and you're all kind of learning together. But um, everybody wants to get it perfect right away. Like, I want to make sure this script is perfect before we like do it. Or I want to yeah, yeah. make sure my training program is perfect. Or, you know, I work with a physical therapist and he's like, Oh, let's figure out, let's do like, let's rehearse and no, fuck, let's just do it. Like, and then we'll figure it out. Right. We do a good job as it is, but, um, we could be better and we're not going to figure out how to be better until we actually do it. And I think that's the problem is you have this divide between people who want to get things perfect. And then you have the plumbers who are just going in there and making shit up, which isn't good either. Like you have to have both, right? You have to have this experience to make the educated guesses. And if you fuck up, it's easy to, to go, okay, well, that's where I fucked up because I have all this experience behind me and I realized that I did that wrong. And if I just change it a little bit like this, it's going to be a lot better. But that, that takes experience. And so, I don't know. I'm the, just confusing everybody. The only, no, no, you know, it's good. The only issue with that is you can fuck up an awful lot with the human organism because it's pretty robust. At least like if you're a plumber, if you fuck up, you know you fucked up because the pipes are leaking. So like, you, like that's the one thing, you know, coaches can get away with a lot of redundancy. Like they can do a lot of bad shit. That's why I'm kind of saying that, you know, it is, it is good for coaches to have some sort of appreciation, to have some sort of feedback on athletes, you know, be it even just subjectively being tuned in, but obviously, you know, to have something objectively. Just before, before we move on to the last one or two questions, Derek, um, just with that high-low model, like, where did Charlie come up with that? Like, it's like, like, where, where, where was the genesis of high-low? I don't think anyone I mean, knows. I don't know that anyway. I mean, I, a lot, I, I don't think it's novel. I think it, you know, people have done this before. Like, it just makes sense, even from like biorhythms or whatever or natural circadian rhythms. Like, you're gonna have some days you do more and some days you do less. So, I don't think it's novel. Um, I think there was some discussion um, with like some of the East German coaches for the women where they talked about, and I think it all hinged on the central nervous system component, like how much you time can, it takes. You can say women in quotation marks there. <laughs> yeah. Um, like they said, we did not come here to sing. We came here to swim. Um, but the whole idea that, um, there's limitations, right? There's limitations uh, from a recovery, a central nervous system recovery and neurotransmitter replenishment and dopamine and all this stuff. And so <clears throat> I think the high-low model came from the fact that, well, we couldn't train hard every day because we had these limitations on the organism, right? Mm. Um, but and, say then like the 95, 75, like where did he pull that out of? Just, just again, uh, somewhere to start? Yeah. Yeah, I think um, I, just basic observation, right? And I'm not, I'm not, listen, it's still a great model. It's just that I often, like, it's funny because, like, even, like, with Isherin's book and his train residuals, like, there's people who quote that, like, it's fucking absolute. I remember no, like that, you know, that motor unit diagram where we said it's this many yeah. motor units. 
Yeah, everybody's like, where did you study this? I'm like, I don't know. We were eating fried chicken in his living room or something like that. And he, he said, oh, what do you think about this? I don't know. Let's put the wrist curl way over here. And we'll put sprinting here. And then we just started dropping. But, like, Derek, that's what I thought. People, I think, like, that's from some sort of race. I'm like, I just think he, like, made that off intuition. Like, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, and again, it doesn't make it wrong or anything. Like, you know, it's... It's a starting point. It's a model to start. Yeah. At least it goes back to fucking... Uh, What's his name? Uh, Ka- uh, Daniel fucking thinking fast and slow. How do you say his name? Daniel Kahneman, is it? Kahneman? That's how you say his name? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But is it like, you know, all models are wrong. You know, so like, like no matter what the model is, it's always going to be wrong to a certain degree. But it gives you, again, a starting point, of, a frame of reference to build from. Like, so, no, I'm just interested in that, you know. Because um, even, it was funny, I was just re-watching some of his videos. It's so funny, those videos he did with, you know, An- Angie. And like, they're down the basement. They're like, He's like so laid back and so like parasympathetic and she's like just really like, you know, just like she's so fight, flight, sympathetic and she's just like... High and low. Yeah, it's high and low. Oh, it's unbelievable. But uh, it's so funny just watching her like she's just like so like tuned in and pupils dilated and he's just like, okay, honey, whatever. Um, But his his video on weights for speed is very interesting too, you know, so... I mean, that's something we we, we could definitely talk about on our stage because I know we're running short in time here. But I'd be interested to maybe ask you some questions in around that, um, and as well, I'd love to actually talk to you about uh, speed work with te- with uh, teams. That's something actually I'd like to get you back on, maybe to have a good discussion about because it's uh, it's definitely because I mean for me personally, uh, I mean that's been my bread and butter is working with teams and you know yeah. trying to integrate quality speed work teams. And the thing is, is that like. Like you go in with someone like NFL and a lot of them NFL lads are very well established with speed work because it usually is a very big part of their preparation in college, you know, even good high school program. Well, I, would argue, I would argue that no. <laughs> well, I, I mean... It's, it's a big natural selection meat grinder and the fastest guys are the faster guys okay, with skill, yeah, yeah. right? But if you go and inspect uh, some of the, the training programs, it's not true speed work. It's, yeah, it's no, sorry. Like, what, what I mean by that is you've better, <laughs> you've better athletes to work with. To, yeah, 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 yeah. But like I'd say, in my world, I'm working with like amateur, like, and again, I mean, no, it's like people say, I mean, it's a nice possible. It's not gonna be nice. Like you're working with guys who are duds in terms of their movement, like they're disasters. Like they're amateurs, they sit at a desk all day, and you get people go, you know, should we work in their speed work? It's like this, and like nothing's gonna change that kyphotic mess over there. Like you know what I mean? It's just like nothing really is gonna change it, you know. And the other thing is, that we only got like. Two, two training sessions a week plus a game at the weekend and you get all these people saying you know you know should we do all the speed stuff it's like we just don't have the fucking time like you know and then they are getting injured and it is like what i've started sorry i'm rambling here a bit and i'll let you answer now what i've started to appreciate over the last while is that everyone's talking about like all these long-term like development programs with kids and all and it's all like they're in the weight room doing squats and hinging and planks and push-ups and all this I'm like, listen, all this stuff is great. It, it all has, it, it all has a, it, it all. <laughs> doing somersaults and gymnastics. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like it's, <laughs> it, it's, it's all part of the puzzle. Yeah. It, it, it is, it is a, a piece of the pie, no doubt about it. But I was like, the, the one movement that they are going to do repetitively over and over, like the one they're going to do the most is sprint. And we don't do anything. And people are wondering, why are all these kids breaking down? I mean, they were on an LTAD program. And it's just like, do you fucking think single leg deadlifts is going to prepare somebody for the ground? I don't need to say it's you, but for the ground contact times, the velocities, the joint angles, the blah, 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 blah. And uh, it's just, I something else there I was going to say that will come to me in a second, but it's just like, 
they're just not physically prepared like for for, for what they're gonna encompass they're, like, again it's just like that's the environment they're gonna compete in and they're not ready to compete in those environments and people are just like scratching their heads and their minds like well, what have we actually done and again it's because people oh, i know what i was going to say to you it's because we don't have the education in speed in in sprint mechanics and proper speed program and stuff but again it's mainly more so the mechanical models but what i was going to say for that answer is like it really is the equivalent of going into a weight room and watching somebody just have horrendous deadlift technique horrendous squat technique horrendous technique and everything and not doing anything about it and thinking and then wondering why are these people getting injured it's like it's the exact same it's just because speed is so much harder to see and correct and people just don't have the same education because again weight room stuff is just so much more easier to control because it's slower but anyway that was me ranting on that but I, i've just come to that realization like, everyone's talking about these long-term athletic development models it's like you know we've our, our hinge and our squat and our push and our pull and our plank models is like that's all great still not going to get them ready to sprint or change direction Yes, yes, uh, it is your it is your show. Um, the it was interesting. I put up. Uh, I think I got like two hundred thousand views of. Uh, I had two treadmill examples, and one was a fifteen year old girl who was a soccer player, and and the other was Pat Davidson. That's disaster. <laughs> well, actually, it was pretty good. Um, but one was a kid with a track and field background, did long jump. Anyways, so I put it on, and I drew some little circles to show or ellipses to show what their heel recovery is and, and sort of the vertical action. Good. Like, that sounds like it makes sense to me. And, uh, and even the father's like, most of the running she does is without the ball. So uh, we want to improve that, right? I'm like, oh, you're a smart guy. Um, so we, we've done work with her, made some significant improvements. And, but in that video, you can see her heel recovery is lower. So I put that out there. And then all these soccer people jumped on and said, well, she's got to play the ball. She's got to have lower heel recovery. Like Messi has low, you know, runs like this. And I was like, oh, God, okay, here we go. So the question is, like, if I'm going to solve her issues where she needs to be faster, I need to improve these qualities. I don't care what you say. Like, when she plays the ball, yes, her feet will be closer to the ground. Great. That, you, guess what? She's doing way too much of that already uh, right now, but she's not doing any of this stuff that I, I want to do. And I think that's where people have to start going, okay, what are we doing already? Well, we're running around at slow speeds, shuffling around the field. Okay, we got that piece, right? Do we need to do more of that? No, we don't need to do more of that. So let's do some things where they're actually putting force into the ground and then there'll be all these other payoffs in terms of change of direction. So we've turned her from a shuffler. Now she looks like an actual sprinter. Like, and her parents are uh, through the roof and the coach is like, what the hell did you guys do? Like, she's way better, right? And she plays better, you know, great. Um, so I just think that's the problem is, yes, you need to do the specifics of your sport to get better. So do that. You don't, you know, okay, can we do a few somersaults? Yeah, great. Okay. But yes, you have to teach people how to run faster uh, for the, the reasons that you identified. Like it's all force application of the ground. You know, there's all these debates about like, is it horizontal? Is it a vertical force? And I'm like, well, it's vertical because guess what's pulling us into the ground, right? It's gravity. That doesn't change. So the better you get at dealing with that, uh, the easier it's going to be to run, right? So I just, the, all I do is I just work on vertical force components. I do all the old school mock drills and we get them doing those very efficiently and very powerfully. And guess what? When we put them back onto the track, it's just there. It's available. Like I, if you go back and watch like the karate kid, not the 
the, the Jackie Chan one, but the actual original one, like wax on, wax off, you know, paint, 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 whatever. And then when I punch you, like, boom, right? It's mm-hmm. the same thing. It's wax on, wax off, right? But it's, it, I'm not telling them how to run. I'm just giving them qualities that make them run better, right? And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's very little discussion happening on the track when we're doing this. And, and if, if people just did that, and it, you don't have to do a lot of it, um, I think everybody would be better off, in my opinion. Yeah. So. All right, wrapping up here. Are you still good for one, a few more minutes? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, that's great. See, this consultancy gig suits you great. You've got so much more autonomy now. Yeah, nobody wants me today, so. <laughs> I want you, Hanson. <laughs> um, just a quick uh, digression here, side note. Uh, Panriello finally fucking delivered that book of his. Along with along with Al Miller and uh, Johnny Parker, it's good to see. Yeah, it's a big it's a big book. I uh, one part of me is a bit sad because I'm like, I bet you Vermeil won't fucking write a book now. He, I think, oh, should the guys have done it? Because right, I'm always on on to Al. I'm like, Al, oh, will you write that fucking book? Because he has that underground has book. book. Yeah, the underground we all have yeah, the yeah, underground yeah, book, yeah, but yeah. you know, I still would love to see him kind of publish, you know, some mainstream. Um, that's because Al, like he, he's because I remember speaking to him. He just goes, "I wouldn't be happy." It was like Al, no, no one's ever happy with a book. Yeah, none of us are happy. Like, yeah. come on. <laughs> so, well, he's the worst. You ever speak to him? He's always like, so he, whenever he speaks with his achievements, he always apologizes. Like, stop apologizing. Like you're a legend. Yeah. You know, yeah. can stop it, stop. But uh, what are you currently reading? Um, <laughs> uh, I'm I'm reading stuff that's going to help me try to deliver the the material and content I want to deliver. Like whether it's um, like I, I was reading some stuff on just how to run a mentorship program properly or just be a good mentor. And then, you know, how do I translate that into doing something as an online activity where you want to make sure there's a lot of personal contact as part of that um, type of program. Like, you know, you don't want to just send people PowerPoint slides and, and shitty videos. So I'm trying, I, I, I'm just trying to find ways to teach better or to connect with people better. And so a lot of the reading I'm doing is more along those lines. I, and I don't, again, I don't want to sound like a dickhead and say like, well, I'm not reading training stuff. I mean, you know, I'll, I'll do the same as you. Like you'll see studies, research studies, and you kind of look at them and say, well, 90% of these uh, are useless. And then there's a few there that makes you think, right? Yeah. Um, but as far as training material. No, it doesn't have to be any. I, I don't yeah. ask for training material. No, I mean, and then, and then, you know, everybody goes through all these leadership phases. Like, oh, I'm going to read this book. And, and they're that. all the fucking same, the books. Oh, like, <laughs> I know. It's the subconscious mind versus the conscious mind. Your subconscious yeah. mind is, is sabotaging and you got to overwrite those belief systems and, yeah, that explains all your behaviors, and once you understand that, comes to awareness, you become a better leader in communication. Yeah, so so, so I've uh, I've gone through those phases, um, and not that I've mastered any of those things, but I get it, right? And so um, there's this friend of mine who 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 had this idea, and uh, he wanted to write a screenplay, and because I've worked with some actors, so I've I've been helping him do that. How so I've been actually, you, how did you get it? So I never knew this. Where does this work with actors thing come from? I, it's, it's, I've been, I work with, uh, one of the first actors I work with was Richard Dean Anderson, which is well, when you say work with them. Do you mean like we a personal trainer to them? Uh, sometimes the one, his was rehab. He had torn his meniscus and needed some oh, help. So anyways, that is sad. Yeah. to which, you know, he tore his meniscus and MacGyver and everybody's like, well, did you put chewing gum on it in the paperclip? I'm like, no, no, we actually rehabbed him. 
That's um, that was that clip and family guy, you know. MacGyver. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, um, so I actually been reading stuff about uh, dialogue, script writing, and screenplay, and story, and character development. Right. Very good. Which is interesting. Yeah. Because it actually it it actually makes you start looking at people's motivations, right? Because everything, all the all the dialogue and the setting has to reflect what the characters' motivations are, right? Which goes back to exactly what we were talking about initially about coaching and, and consultancy. Leadership. But I mean that that could only help with the consultancy role, you know? Yeah, yeah. So that's I and there's these great YouTube videos where you have these people talking about like I watch these things about Quentin Tarantino and how he sets up dialogue and stuff and. I'm like, this is brilliant, right? And I think a lot of people just think you go to the movies and it's, it's some sort of formula. But I think there's um, actually intelligent people pushing your buttons, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so, I mean, those are some of the things um, I'm reading right now. Like there's a book that I downloaded off Kindle and it was all about character development. Um, and it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. So um, because there's psychology, um, there's, you know, you talk about, flawed human beings right and if you're involved in sport like we can't get enough of those right so actually um, listen where i'm fucking flawed we're all flawed. <laughs> we all have our fucking demons uh, there <laughs> yeah exactly so fucked up. so for self-therapy yeah uh you know you know read read about telling a story and i i wanted to do um one of those master classes with like martin scorsese or somebody so i haven't done one of those yet but um that's kind of where I'm poking my head right, right now. Yeah. Um, I know you do, I know as we touched on, you do a lot of travel, but when you are at home for an extended period of time, is there anything you do on a daily basis that's essential to your day? I go for a walk in the morning. So I'll drop my kids off at school and there's a park there and I walk around and, and I will take calls or I'll like read something or listen to some music or listen to a podcast or something like that. But mm. I don't know. It's just one of those things where like, if I do it, it's like, okay, I did that, right? It's probably, uh, I think it's only about 4K, 4 or 5K, but whatever, I do a walk. And, um, you know, I'm at that, I'm turning 50 this year. So, you know, I want to stay as fit as possible, but you got to be careful too, right? You don't want to push yourself over the edge and um, I'm pretty conservative in everything I do now. Like I'll still lift weights, I'll still run and sprint and all that, but uh, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not just saying this now and uh, people listen be like oh he's just kissing his ass you you honestly do not look 50 well i've got i've got it's in august my birthday's in august so i got a couple of months here to fuck myself up so <laughs> uh, honestly I, I didn't think you were near 50 you look fucking i actually thought you were early 40s to be honest it's the walks it's the walks it's the yeah. walks and then, yeah. um and the and the the intermittent fasting the random fasting yeah 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 extends life yeah people also it extends life it's like well they've only shown it in fucking rats and mice but there could be some potential yeah. there but uh since we last spoke in 2015 have you changed your mind on anything is there anything like one like a kind of a, a thing that you held as a fairly steadfast belief that you're kind of like eh, i don't know if i truly believe that anymore or is there you know but basically what's been the biggest lesson you've learned over the last three and a half years since we spoke last um, I think it does go back to a lot of this, this thinking around, like just isolate things, keep it simple, you know, try to focus on one or two things at a time, like in coaching, like it's so easy to be bogged down by, and I, you know, I get into that habit too, where like, I like 
I like cameras and it's like, oh, I got to, I got to get a better camera to make me a better photographer when I should just actually learn how to be a better photographer with a shitty camera. Um, <laughs> Love it. You know, right. It's the same sort of thing. So like, let, let's keep things simple. Um, That's kind of like Jack White with his guitars, you know what I mean? Yeah. Looking, don't be getting a better guitar if you're shit at it. Like, yeah, get some shitty golf clubs and see if you can still play golf. Um, so that I think that's uh, you know don't get too caught up in equipment and I love technology too but I think that's you know what's important um, and yeah just falling back on stuff that I think were initially held beliefs that really worked and then sometimes you stray away from that stuff but the basic stuff uh, has worked really well and I think that's what I'm trying to do I'm trying to do some work with even the return to play stuff that I'm working on I'm trying to do almost like a certification around that. Uh. where it's just really simple things that people aren't doing now. They're just not doing them for whatever reason. Maybe it's because of technology, but um, you know, like let's have a, I'm going to do a running based return to play model that has worked great. It has worked fabulous. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, spending some time with physical therapists and, and doctors and, and those types of people and saying, look, this works. Um, you can still do a lot of the other stuff, but I know this works and I get results really quickly. You have, you have something on strength, power, speed around return to play, haven't you? Yeah. Like, uh, there, there's lots of articles about just the process and, and, yeah, uh, yeah. so, and then that's, that's even part of the ment. like I have a mentorship program that I've sort of started up with the sprintcoach.com, and, and that's, that's, that's part of, um, the discussion is like, people are going to get injured. Like everybody talks about injury prevention all the time. Like, how are we going to prevent all these injuries? Well, guess what? People are going to get injured. So here's, here's how you deal with it, right? Here's how you get them back, right? It's just, it's a fact. So here's how you get them back. Here's how you get them back quickly so that they don't re-injure. And even with, um, um, like we had this case where this guy comes into the physical therapy clinic. He's like, ah, both my knees are fucked. Right. And so, you know, the physical therapists are all going around like, okay, what is it? Like, how's this core strength? How, blah, blah, blah. And I said, okay, it's a bilateral knee pain um, on the outside of the knee, right? Like, oh, ITB, whatever, IT band. And I said, okay, well, what do you do? Says, I don't know. My buddy uh, came up to me a couple of weeks ago and said, hey, you want to run a half marathon tomorrow? So they ran a half marathon and his knees hurt him, right? And I said, okay, when was the only other time you had this happen? Oh, the same buddy, like six months ago, he wanted to go on a 20 mile hike up and down this mountain. We did it. My knees hurt. I'm like, okay, do you actually prepare for these things? Do you actually train? Do you actually have a training? No, I just do it. I'm like, okay, that, there's your problem, right? Your, so, your problem's your buddy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, your buddy's a moron, right? So your treatment is to tell him to go fuck off. Yeah. So that's a really simple solution to what somebody can turn into a really complicated problem. Yeah, yeah. I see now. One time we were on strengthcoach.com, like, and you know, a question was on around shin splints, and they're all like, you know, shin splints, shin splints. And like, everyone's like, you know, have you checked, you know, extra straight leg raise and toe touch and blah, blah. And then Mike Boyle chimes and goes, um, has the athlete recently gone back to playing their sport? And then like the coach goes, Oh yeah, they did. He goes, ask them what, uh, what they did in their first training session back. And then the person goes back to form next thing. Yeah, they did like, you know, a ridiculous amount of running volume. Michael stares your answer. <laughs> they just like, yeah. they just, he's like, he's it's just simple training volume. Well, people were like asking all about like, you know, just now, like, not to say it couldn't have been a mechanical issue, like, you know, or some type of, of move and there probably was a movement issue, but Mike was like, it was just purely training volume, like just bad prescription. Yeah, like we had seven uh, hamstring pulls. Okay, well, what do you guys do for training? 
oh, we, we do gassers and we run 300-yard yeah. shuttles. Yeah, yeah. Do you ever sprint? No. Oh, okay. I'll just keep doing what you're doing. Yeah. Right? It's, it's so ridiculous. So. Yeah, yeah but you see that fucking everywhere. Uh, how do you learn? What is your learning process? So uh, another way of asking that is there's a topic that you're like, I really want to know everything about this topic. How do you go about mastering it? Um, you got to find people who know that topic. Like you got to talk to people. Like it's, it's so easy to go like, Oh, all this information's on the internet and I can just self learn. And like, you got to talk to people. Like you got to put yourself in a position where you're in front of somebody and they're, um, they're sharing their, uh, process, but also their history. Right. So you got to get people who tell you stories about like, Hey, this is what happened when I did this. And if you can find great people who are storytellers and can pass on information about a very specific topic, it's really easy to learn. And then the second part of that is somehow you got to immerse yourself into that environment where you put yourself in a position where you have to learn, right? It's just like language, right? Like I spent five years in high school and we had to take French class. Like, you know, I know a few things, but unless you're doing an immersive situation where you're forced to learn how to speak that language and listen to people, mm. you're not going to learn it. I'm sorry. So, you know, th those are the two things. Find somebody who's an expert and then put yourself in that scenario where you have to learn. How can, how can you tell though if the person is an expert? So like, how can you tell somebody is competent because like experience doesn't equal expertise. No, this is true. Like the 10,000 hour rule is, is, is just really bullshit, right? Damn so you glad well. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, just, just ask Gladwell's hairdresser. But um, Ooh. <laughs> I just lost him as a listener now. Fuck you, Derek. Oh, sorry, I, don't, okay. I, don't, I don't think Malcolm listens anyway. <laughs> He's Canadian. He'll understand. Um, I... Uh, I, I forgot what you asked me. Uh, how can you tell if somebody is competent? Oh, like um, expertise, experience is an equal expertise. I think, I don't know. Like, obviously you have to know, you have to have a nose for it. But at the same time, like if somebody's really good at something, one, they're not going to be boastful. Like they're not going to be like talking about themselves all the time. They may ask something about yourself. Like they're good human beings, right? So if somebody's an expert, they'll try to learn about you before you learn about them to, for the most part. And then, and then they'll have, uh, the, the, they'll be pretty easy to understand, I think. But if, if they make it complicated, like just turn and run. Like if they try to one, cause they're only trying to make it complicated to, to show that they're, Oh, I'm an expert. Right. But there's two parts to it. The one is like, as you know, you have to have some competency, some knowledge, right. But you also have some ability to communicate and connect with people to transfer that knowledge. It doesn't matter how smart you are. We know a lot of smart people who we can't pull the information out of their head because they're just mental morons when it comes to socializing with people. So I think that's, that's huge. Like you can have somebody who has 40% of the knowledge of some other genius, but if that genius can't get it out of his head and that at least you can get that 40% in a really digestible form from the person who can relate it to you. Yeah. And that's useful. So I, I just think, I think you should, you can figure it out very quickly. Who's an expert. Like there was uh, one scenario where, again, this physical therapist like hired this guy like, oh, I know how to get more business for you. And uh, you jump on calls with me and I'll walk you through and how to, you know, get more patients and maximize your, your revenues and all that. And then you get him on and the guy was a dick, like right off the bat. So I'm like, fuck this guy. Like this, I don't care how smart he is. He's just an arrogant dick. 
And I just didn't, I just, it wasn't a good learning environment. Like I'm not, I don't want to learn from this guy. This guy's a dick. Right. Mm. So I think you gotta be, you gotta, you know, again, you gotta survey everything and just go, okay, well, what's the total picture here? Because I could just get good. Like I said, I could just read and rather than having a dick experience with this guy, I could probably just read a book. Right. You know, I don't know. You said dick an awful lot there in the last few minutes. Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. Sorry. Right. You said the filter was off. Oh, yeah. I'm just saying, I'm just saying, no, that I haven't heard the word dick used that much in a while. Dick. It's an unfortunate name, too, isn't it? Dick yeah. Richard. Wait, wait, where did Dick and Richard? How, does he, how do you get Dick and Richard? Anyway, um, if you weren't this random question, if you weren't Canadian, where would you have liked to have been from? Do you think? Ha <laughs> like <laughs> be from uh, <laughs> um i love the way you've hesitated and haven't even like i i don't know like i don't i, I just um i i i'm gonna say somewhere like in northern europe scandinavia like that you know not that i'm like i not that i get a lot of inspiration about walking through an ikea but um i don't know i'm just pretty reserved for the most part and you know I don't a lot. Of, I don't. Yeah, I don't like a lot of people talking in my face, and it, everybody seemed. The other place was Japan, right? I, I spent some time there doing a doing a training camp with, with some speed skaters, and we weren't in Tokyo. We were like in some area close to Nagano, and uh, it was great. Like I'm the only non-Japanese person walking up and down the streets, a small town, and nobody's like pointing and looking at me like, "Who's this guy?" They're just all minding their business. You go to a restaurant. It's quiet. Everybody's minding their business. Everybody's polite. And that was awesome. I'd probably go nuts there after like maybe like six months there. But uh, as far as just being in a culture where you're like, yeah, this is cool. So Scandinavia or uh, Japan. That's what I'm going to say. I'm going to go with that. Sorry, internet connections with Dodger. Just give it two seconds. It just went a bit unstable. Wi-Fi, it's back there now. Did you get? You, did you hear me though? No, yeah, you were, you were you, a tiny bit now, but like you, you said, J- Scandinavia, Japan. And, yeah, and you were yeah. saying that you had a good time in Japan, but if you're there for six months, you'd lose your. Focus. It was very reserved. Like yeah. I, I don't do well in like uh, New Orleans or you know, New York's different, but yeah, it's, you know, it's somewhere that's kind of. T- t- tell me, actually, yeah, you see, you do seem to like meeting up. Like uh, you, you spent some quality time with Doug and with Pat. Um, on a few occasions in New York, how have those? They seem to be good times. Like, give us give us some uh, insights. What what was it like with the with the guys? Uh, good because they're very intelligent guys, right? And they're not. Uh, Pat's they're, a they're, fucking legend. I fucking <laughs> love that bloke. Yeah, like Pat's this weird combination of like a very intelligent, very thoughtful, uh, articulate person, and then sometimes he can just turn into like an absolute fucking animal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is kind of kind of interesting. Severe um, lack of severe lack of neck. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Um, so yeah, there's some sort of blood flow restriction thing going on. But um, yeah, no, it's good to sit down with people like that. And they're, again, they're good people, and they appreciate you know, you know, hearing my point of view, and we kind of, kind of bat things back and forth, and uh, spending time in that environment um, is good. Like with Doug too, like you get his sort of background from sort of his military experience. Um, and what he's doing as a physical therapist, but he's still interested in training people yeah. too. I really like, I really like Doug. Like, I've never actually officially spoken with him. I must come on the park, but I really like just how he comes across. You know, he's very just sort of like logical, 
he just has a real sort of nice politeness about you know the way he is. I like just his mannerism of how he delivers his message. Yeah, and, and he seems to be very good. And maybe this is a military thing, but he seems to be very good at removing emotion from decision making, right? Yeah. And I think that's that that's something that a lot of the time in sports that's lacking. Like Doug for president. It's yeah. <laughs> it's so yes, my vote. Like imagine having fucking him or Davidson. Davidson would just be fucking going off emotion sometimes. Fuck him. Yeah, Davidson could be vice president. I think he would be a good vice president. He'd be like Tr. He'd be like Teddy Roosevelt. Yeah, he'd just be yeah, fucking yeah. wrestling people and all. He'd be great. Ah, oh, the two boys yeah. are legends. Well, I'm obviously I'm very close with Pat. Like I, I've met him when when we were in Arizona. He was down for PR course. So I got to meet up with him in person, and you know, we regularly speak on the podcast. Man, he's great. I gotta get the fuck out of here because I gotta go home and, and eat. But I have two more questions for you. Um. If you only had one year left on planet Earth, how would you spend that year and why? Oh, I mean, obviously you're going to spend it with your family and just, um, yeah, just quality time with the family doing different things. And Derek, she's not going to listen. You can be honest here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, we're going to go to Bora Bora, Robbie, and we're going to hang out with swimsuit models. Um, uh, Bring the cocaine. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, I, I just think I'm probably going to do something pretty quiet and, yeah. uh, I just, I don't know. That's just, that's just my, my, my way. I think the best answer, one of the best answers, I can't remember who said it. They said they document their life and like, and leave it for their kids, you know, like they do year document. Who oh, like, are. so the entire earth won't be destroyed. I'm just going to be gone in a year. No, you're just gone. Oh, okay. Well, that's different. Yeah. <laughs> I would still spend time with my family and then, yeah, try to. Borbor is definitely on the fucking <laughs> But if or earth was going to be obliterated. Yeah, that's a different story. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Like, you want to leave some sort of legacy behind for, for your family at the very least. Um, I wonder what that, you know, you just put a question in my head there. Uh, listen, we can both think about this, and I'm going to think about this actually now for the next day or two. It's in my mind. What would actually happen to the world? Like, if, like, if, just say, like, tomorrow they come out and say, listen, there's a meteor going to hit us in a year. There's nothing we can do about it. Everyone's got one year left to live. Like, how that would profoundly change some people? Like, I wonder what, what would happen. Like, obviously, ask, those, ask those people in Hawaii. Um, yeah, I don't know. Um, something to think about, wouldn't it? Well, obviously, like, everyone's going to be, like, doing everything to fucking try and destroy the asteroid. But they were like, listen, we can't. We can try and deflect it. But it would be just interesting, like, if, if, if everyone in the world were to listen, we've only got one year left, like, what would people actually do? Place would go nuts, I'd say, wouldn't it? I yeah, I'm sure the Buddhist monks will be just like, yeah, whatever, man. Like, you know, let's just sit here and uh, it's going to happen. We can't do anything. And I think, um, I think uh, it's an interesting question because I think it goes back to this idea of like, you know, what can you control and what can't you control, and and understand. And I think that's 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 a lot of what creates anxiety for people is oh, they big really focus on the shit that they can't control yeah well your, that's in uh tony robinson's book the awakening of giants and then he had like the kind of list of this this list of what what are stressors to humans and it was it was funny the number one stress to humans is uncertainty and then the number two stress was too much certainty yeah yeah like a, the paradox and maybe that's that goes back to that whole planning high low thing the structure you gotta have structure but you got to have unstructured structure just that i'll leave that with people to fuck with them but yeah it's <laughs> there's that's gotta like, be some... that's like my saying where i always go uh, i don't have any do- like my only dogmatic belief is not to have a dogmatic belief I also, yeah yeah um, it's like uh, oxymoron. Remember, 
you do some podcasts with people and they send you a list of 12 questions you're like oh this is gonna be a real fucking boring podcast um especially for me right like uh, i gotta okay question one how what books have you read okay uh question two who is your inspiration what's the best exercise for speed? <laughs> uh, I don't know if you were on a desert island and you only had one piece of exercise equipment what would it be right last (laughs) last question for you we're going for dinner and you can bring five people to this dinner dead or alive who would you bring (laughs) who would you bring and why and and your family alive at the dinner yeah of course yeah yeah. like weekend at bernie's no they'd be stinking if they weren't like alive (laughs) yeah fucking mad thing Uh, (laughs) your family yeah your family don't count no they're they're dead but we bring them back and they're fully alive well we're bringing charlie for sure um You'd be there fucking uh, telling stuff. Can I just tell you one quick thing? One of my favorite Charlie uh, uh, clips is in, I'm very sure it's the Vancouver fucking seminar. I think it was from 2002. Yeah, it was, it was the one he did in 2002. And he's shown a video of Donovan Bailey's 100 meter. And he's also shown clips of, the, of Ben's 100 meter 88. And there's some young coach in the front and he has no clue about like what happened with Ben in 88. Like he's this young coach. And he puts his hand up and he asks Charlie, he goes, sorry, I'm confused. Um, Ben's time is faster than Donovan's, but it says Donovan's is a world record. Why is that? And then Charlie goes to him, ah, oh, young man, you've clearly never heard of the term Stalinism. And everyone just starts erupting laughing. <laughs> I like the young fella hasn't a clue what he's on about. He doesn't even know anything about Stalin. And he goes, Stalin's mean like you just, uh, you, you completely just gone from history. He never existed. And he was just like, he left it to the young fella to figure out. But Did I just you thought see it was that movie, The Death of Stalin? No, I didn't. And I, I love history now, so I'll watch that too. Oh, you gotta watch. It's like a dark comedy. Like, it's like Steve Buscemi plays um, Khrushchev. And uh, yeah, it's really good. I, I would watch it. Anyways, uh-huh. um, if you're a history buff. All right, um, so you have Charlie? Okay, so we have Charlie. <laughs> and Charlie was like uh, just sort of classic for telling the same story over and over again. Because obviously, I've spent a lot of time with him, and I've, I, I would just let him tell it again. Okay. Oh, there's this time when we were uh, we were in Provo, Utah, blah, 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 blah. And you're just like, okay, yeah, I'll take it again. Yeah, just keep telling it. I don't care. But he, I probably heard the same stories like 20 times over. Um, but, you know, that's great. Like the, the whole Donovan Bailey thing is hilarious because I guess uh, Donovan Bailey had, you know, had a lot of meetings with Charlie before he started on his course to become the the whatever the world record holder or whatever so you know charlie has a lot of reach let's just say um but um let's see charlie um what about einstein there behind you eh, i don't see, know, I think I, it would I, be I, very I, interesting yeah this is what i said a lot of people saying i was like what would the conversation be like between he'd be talking about shit you would know like yeah well we're gonna have bruce lee there that's for sure um, a lot of these people that that uh, probably left too soon. You know, I've been I've been on uh, um, YouTube watching like these old live uh, performances by Jim Croce. Um, you know, the the guitarist. Yeah, yeah. And um, and I I just found it fascinating because the guy again he died at around thirty years of age, and I think this whole idea that he became more famous after he died. It was intriguing to me. It's kind of like the Bruce Lee thing too, yeah. right? Like, yeah, yeah. So, okay, so we're going to have those two guys from the 70s. Charlie, so how many? I got two two people left. Two more, yeah. You're doing good here. 
<laughs> no, because mo- um, most people are fucking horrendous at this. They start panicking because they're like, oh, my answer won't be profound. And they're like, can I think about it? I'm like, no, give me fucking five people now. Yeah, I'm not going to have, you know, too many coaches. I just don't find they're interesting people. Um, you know, but if I were to pick, like, is there an actor? There must be another actor out Derek, there. Derek, just so I'm... you know, I couldn't give a fuck about <laughs> any of this. But like, when, when, see when I ask about books, I would go, oh, sports book. And I'm like, I don't give a fuck any book. I don't give a shite what it is. It's like when I had, I, when I had Tim DeFrancesco on. It's actually, it's, it's the last podcast that's up. And like Tim had been on a number of podcasts and everyone asked me, what was it like to work with Kobe Bryant? And I said, Tim, I said to him on the podcast, you can hear it. I said, Tim, just, you know, I don't give a fuck you worked with Kobe Bryant. I couldn't care less. And I want to talk about Kobe. I want to talk about like the burnout that you had at LA Lakers and how much you ended up fucking, the job just sucked life out of you. Anyway, you have two more. <laughs> um, I think there's a lot of people you think would be interesting, but they probably would be really boring and it would disappoint you. So you don't want to ruin that. Um, you know, I mean, I, it would be, uh, it would be interesting to talk. Like there was some for the screenplay that we're writing. We, I went back and I looked at some, uh, dialogue or interviews with people who were in world war two in the Pacific, uh, theater. Um, and, and just reading some of the stuff that they went through was like, oh my God, this, like, this seemed like a really, so maybe like somebody for who's served in the war. Did you see that, uh, Broken. that BBC, the BBC Broken. doc where they went back to world war one and Peter Jackson had re no. uh, colored all the, uh, world war one footage. So he took 10 frame per second footage. Uh, it was roughly 10 frames per second. It was all like, everybody looked like Charlie Chaplin walking around. And then he, they added frames with a computer, uh, algorithm and they colored it so it looked like it was like I, i've seen i've seen a world war one in color documentary but i don't know if it's that one there was a phenomenal one that came out it was america in the war it was a bbps when that came out last year three-part series it was phenomenal it was up on youtube yeah. for a while, but then they took it down that was fucking phenomenal like about the how the whole u.s got involved because yeah. i'm actually i'm a, i love history like i i um like particularly for whatever reason i love american history like i can name all the american presidents back to back and i actually in an episode coming up with zach couples i done it i was like he, he goes i don't believe you <laughs> i don't believe him. I said all right let's go right now and i named all presidents oh, back geez. to back and he did he he does a phenomenal ronald reagan impression he does the mr garbage <laughs> off you want to hear him doing it it's on the podcast it's fucking phenomenal he's brilliant but yeah no, i agree i agree with that uh, like you hear some of those stories about the pacific war like they just like like not only did they get blown out with a fucking plane or a ship got blown up then they had to deal with the sharks then they were like, <laughs> yeah, yeah then they were like just like lying in a fucking raft for days on end like you know like and they start starving and dehydration and then usually they got picked up by the japs and then they got put into a fucking camp for fucking three or four years yeah so one of those guys i don't know <laughs> we'll get one of those guys right and uh but yeah the the vietnam war one that ken burns did so oh, let's label. Yeah, Ken Burns, he's there. Okay, great. That's yeah, great. he's the, he did all those documentaries oh, like yeah, the Civil yeah. War, jazz, baseball, whatever. So we're going to bring Ken Burns. So there's the one on the, he does one savage one on the Roosevelt. Brilliant. And the yeah. Civil War one is amazing too. Yeah. yeah. All right, Derek, that is fucking phenomenal. I got to get that fuck out of here. Uh, okay, man. Thanks and, a lot. Uh, listen, I really appreciate it. This won't be up 
for let me, what do we know we're in January probably won't be up till about March but uh, listen there's only a wrap up here so for everyone listening you're spoiled rotten people with all this information Derek's an absolute legend I can speak to him all day he's my type of guy but for everyone listening thanks for the earbuds and as I say at the end of every as I say at the end of every show take care be well and stay strong Thank you.